Hey, this is Richard Barone, and you're listening to No Good Music. Today we have a special guest with us. He's a singer, songwriter, author, and he was the founder of the 1980s band The Bongos. Let's welcome the No Good Music, Mr. Richard Barone. Hey there. <laughs> wow. Gotta have wow, a Wow, what an audience. Yeah. I love it. I love it. They're so quiet the rest of the time. Button. Just keep hitting that button and we're going to have a great interview. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> That'll be a three hour I mean? interview. <laughs> it works works every time. Hey, so I got a question. Uh, do we call you Richard? Do you have any nicknames that are appropriate? I would suggest calling you by my name, yeah, Richard. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just just checking. So you're uh, obviously in New York today. I am. Correct. Yes, I am. I am. But you were born in uh, Tampa, Florida. I was, but I, I escaped as soon as possible and came to New York. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So we want to start off uh, at the beginning of your musical journey. Ah. The very beginning. Now, well, that's appropriate, yeah. 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 Now, when I was uh, a kid, I wanted, I wanted to be a DJ, but I never pursued it, <laughs> never happened. But you practiced. You know, you know what I'm saying? You practice on 8-track, recording on 8-track. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. did my own. <laughs> anyway. Good. So, so did I. Yeah, yeah. I find it amazing, though, at the age of seven, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you were working as a DJ on a local radio station. How did that happen? I was, well, a few different factors came together. One, I was home a lot because I was not, I was sick with asthma a lot. So I couldn't go okay. out and play like the other kids. So I was listening to records on the radio. I was listening to the radio a lot. Yeah, yeah. And got really obsessed with the top 40 radio stations in Florida. And um, I got to be familiar with who the DJs were and what shows they had, etc. And so I, I, at some point they were doing that station. It was WALT AM, uh, top 40 station in Tampa. Uh, they were doing an event at which one of my favorite DJs was going to be spinning live, you know, mm -hmm, in a yeah. public place. It was a beat. I think, I think it was on the, at the beach. Uh, Tampa Municipal Beach, which is a small little strip of beach in, in Tampa, you know. So my, I asked my mom if she would take me to meet them. And she did, of course. And very, she always encourages still my any of my musical endeavors. And that was that's, the first that's uh, great to example. Have the support. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, I, she, I, she, we met the DJ and he was very nice and they, they immediately put me on the air. Uh-huh. That's just as a goof. But I think I was able to introduce uh, the record properly. I did well, and this, we get, they got phone calls, and I said, who's the little DJ? Uh-huh. And uh, I, did, I stayed on for that show, and then they asked me to start coming back every Sunday. So I had a show called Beach. I was part of a show called Beach Party, and I was the littlest DJ on the Beach Party show. It was really <laughs> a lot of fun. I did that for, for a while. And uh, so starting at 7, I was on the yeah. WALTAM. I guess if you listen to enough radio, n- enough DJs, you kind of, you know, got the f- knew what you needed to do. Yeah, I could emulate the DJ thing, but of course, it sounded maybe different as a, ch- a child doing it. Yeah. But it, it worked <laughs> for them, and it was um, a, a good hook for them, and so we did it. And um, what it, what was good about it was it got me to know a lot about who, the recording industry because they would send me a box, they send me records every week. Oh, okay. Of oh, yeah, top forty to listen to on vinyl awesome. singles, and so I started like looking at the credits and knowing the label names and the, the producers' names if they were credited and the writers, and I became obsessed with that information. Mm-hmm. So that was a growing obsession as I was a teenager, and I started producing bands pretty. Young. You know, at sixteen, mm-hmm. I was producing Tiny Tim. Yeah, that's I'm not sure if that's in your story, yeah. but that's what we're going to ask. Yeah, back. you know, right. so. <laughs> that that was really a it was all connected because it was part of my exposure to being in a radio station, learning about the artists and 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 the the, the terminology of being a producer and so in the music industry. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. right, right. Like us at that age, let's say uh, you know the the early teens. There, you know, we just we would just talk about the bands that we like and maybe about the instruments, the mm-hmm. singer. But mm-hmm. you're talking about record labels. You're talking about producers. You you know you've got a lot of terminology that. That so many, uh, yeah. so many teens and preteens didn't have. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So even the art, even the art, even, even the art directors would intrigue me. Like who designed the covers? I was very oh, really? interested yeah, yeah. in that. Like you know, so it's like you know, I love that. I, I still love all of that. I'm, I'm, I love the music industry. I'm one of the few musicians that I know that actually loves the industry, mm-hmm, and yeah. I work with yeah. the industry very, very, very closely. Always, major labels or indie labels or whatever. I'm happy to to work with the uh, industry side of it. You know, I, mm-hmm. I have, I find fun, a lot of, a lot of fun with that. So, uh, yeah. So, so as you're, what, what were some of the early experiences then, uh, you know, with producing a local band? What's, what, yeah. what did you learn quick? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first, the first band was my own. I had a punk, this was like as the punk, by that age, now the punk movement was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. So I really, lo- I really loved the Ramones. Yeah. I loved mm-hmm. Richard Hell and the Voidoids, and uh, I love television. Patti Smith, all of these bands just inspired me to make recordings. And so yeah. I had a band, it was a trio, and it was called Snails, The Snails. Yes. Oh. And, um, and we were doing like, we, we, were, we didn't have very much original material, but we were doing like Sparks covers mm-hmm. from yeah. K- K- Kimono, the, the first Sparks. Uh, well, not the first, we didn't do Half Nelson, but we were doing like songs from, uh, you know, Come Out of My House or, or, uh-huh. or whatever current Sparks album was out at the time. Wow. Uh, and cool. we were doing, we were doing, we did a bit of Velvet Underground. I always loved them and um, I loved Lou Reed. So we were doing like uh, songs from the first uh, Velvet Underground album and the second one. We did a, ver- we recorded a version of White Light, White Heat when I was 16. It was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so, you know, we started playing locally and, and recording. I got into the, like, like you were asking what I learned about recording. Well, I learned a lot because I learned about spontaneity and I wrote about it in my first book about letting things happen. Like sometimes mm-hmm. we get too hung up on uh, recording sessions in the, a plan. Yeah. And I think plans are important, but I think we have to leave a lot of room for things to happen to have magic. 
on a record. <laughs> and I learned that pretty early. Like I learned, okay, if we do it exactly like this, it's gonna be boring. So yeah. I would always then have some element, like maybe bring in some instrument that we didn't really know how to play or something that would be a wild card element uh, so that every recording had something happening that we didn't even expect. Well, it leads to more you know, that's one of my creativity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That you're not yeah, in this, yeah. this mm -hmm. vacuum or this box that the re that the recording right uh, and then you have different company put different you in and when so songs that are so creative and and so become popular mm -hmm. even it's it's because they were allowed mm -hmm. to be themselves hey an example of the opposite yeah. of that would be uh would be u2's uh hawk moon 269 uh they beat it to death and planned it so much that no one even knows that song Mm -hmm. <laughs> written and sung yeah, by, yeah. by the edge uh, they 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 learned to, uh, uh, to just, they learned to despise it and hate it and it was buried they yeah. put the nail in the coffin as soon well, as they produced it well that's an example of a band who when i first uh i loved i like i really love their early records and i was in the studio once with uh with the producer hugh jones who uh in my clouds over eden album and while we were recording clouds over eden they were working on an album and I, forgive me i can't remember which album it actually was uh it was one of their big hit records though and i'll tell you that they had no material at all we were on the phone with them every day with because uh, my producer was best friends with flood who was producing mm -hmm. that particular album yeah, yeah. oh that was and, pop and yeah pop is the okay uh, what, produced what, by flood yeah whatever it was it, they didn't have any material ready so they were just creating in the studio spontaneously mm -hmm. and that was that was actually exciting for me that somebody could do that completely mm -hmm. like they didn't they didn't come up they didn't come in with a lot of pre-written songs i don't think for that yeah, record yeah, yeah. And because he would call and say, how are they doing today? Well, they're still working. They were just really creating in the studio. Yeah. yeah. That's something that I really like to make part of my process. Like I'll have a plan. I like songwriting. So I'll go in with my lyrics and mm -hmm. a song. But as far as the production side of it and what yeah. I wanna, like, want it to sound like, I don't <laughs> really want to even know yet until I get yeah. in the, go in the studio. Okay. That's so it's great. a for me it's a combination. I'm a Libra, so everything is about balancing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and to me, I balance like okay, I have a song. This is the lyric. This is how it goes, yeah. mm -hmm. and this is what it's about. And then like what it's going to sound like, I don't know yet until yeah. we do it. Like like I'm outdoors a lot, and it'd be like going for a hike, and I'm I'm planning on seeing a deer and a fox. Like like no, you yeah. don't plan that. You go for a hike. I mean, it's exciting. Yeah. I don't. I might not see anyone. Same idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you don't know yeah. what you're going to get. <laughs> and then you're surprised and happy when you do. So it's like that's the oh, same yeah. with music, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yo, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good description. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about Tiny Tim. Oh uh, um, yeah. Now I I only know him. I've never met him, uh, but I only mm. know him from being on Howard Stern. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> but I I do think he was a honest, intelligent person. But you met him when you were sixteen, and yeah. I guess he was performing. Yes. Uh, in Florida, were you still in Florida? He was. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And is that the concert you recorded? No. Okay. No. For one thing, number one, it wasn't a concert. He was playing at a really small bar. Okay. So to call it a, to call it a concert <laughs> okay. would be really stretching it. Okay. He was yeah. playing. Do you, do, you, do you know what Travel Lodge hotels are or were? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Travel Lodge. You know, yeah. it's a chain, and they have like maybe a small bar in the okay. hotel, but it's not <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. There's. Like a lounge. There's bar no grand space. Yeah. Exactly. There's no grand yeah. space. There's probably no stage. Okay. I didn't. I wasn't. We couldn't get in because we were underage. Okay. Anyway, so I don't even yeah. know what the bar was like because we were outside the door listening. Okay. Uh, but I'll tell you, it was a small place. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Tiny, when I met Tiny Tim, it was years after, a decade after his big successes, really. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Uh, and it, for me, as a 16-year-old, he was a vague memory of like something I heard about when I was much younger. Like I'd heard, I knew him from the, when I was on the radio, I had heard of Tiny yeah. Tim. You know what I mean? Okay. It's like, yeah. I knew that he was a character. Yeah. Well, but it turns out that he was a very, very special artist. And I wrote a lot about him in my current book, you know, Music and Revolution, yeah. which I'll hold up here because it's always it's always on my desk. Oh, yeah. It's all it's always next to me because yeah. I use it's also my textbook for my class that I teach at school. Oh, okay. You know? So there's a lot about Tiny Tim because he opened up my mind about Greenwich Village and about this mm-hmm. music scene of the 60s and why it was important. Number one, so he did that. He also opened up my mind about the idea that music, pop music, does not start with the Beatles. That it goes back decades before the yeah. Beatles. That it goes back to vaudeville and before, and the early recorded music is really the turn of the 20th century. You know, the beginning yeah. of the 20th century is when you know Edison, the cylinders, and the yeah. you know all the different early water recordings. Yeah. I, I have a Detroit, really so yeah, I put something on from 120 years ago. Right. Well, this so so did Tiny Tim. He listened yeah. in his bedroom. He had a Victrola. Yeah. He would have all these old records. I didn't, this was all new to me. I didn't really understand how pop music had a long, long history. So he taught me a lot about that. And when we recorded songs, they were usually from the 1930s. So we made an album that's, it's the album that we have out that I, I produced for him then. It's called uh, Rare Moments, because that was his phrase, or Rare Moments. He would always tell me that. We were, these are rare moments. Uh, Rare Moments, Volume One, uh, I've Never Seen a Straight Banana. Yeah. Love okay. that now that yeah. song. <laughs> I do too. I, you know, for me, even at that age, I thought, where did he even find this? But then, of course, later <laughs> I researched it. And it was, it was, it was from 1933 or 1935, mm-hmm. and it was actually a song that was a minor British hit for a a, a group, a, a singing group. You know, I've never seen a strip. He had a very funny performance of it. It's on the record, and people mm-hmm. can hear it on the streaming services. Yeah, uh, it's it came out. Of, it finally, this was the problem at at that age. I had zero record company connections. I didn't really okay. know Clive Davis then or, or Seymour Stein or people mm-hmm. who then became a big part of my life or friends or associates. Yeah. I didn't know anyone to take it to. So it sat in my collection mm-hmm. until 20. So this is like we're talking years before. It didn't make it out as a record until 2009. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I had the takes since I was a teenager. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it finally came out and uh, it came out on Collector's Choice Records and people can find it like on. It's also on all the streaming services. Yeah, it was I really, found it on Apple Music. Yeah, it's on Apple Music. And it's I really love it. It's now you named it Rare Moments Volume One. Is there more that you're holding on to? Well, yes. Yes and no. There. there it's not that I'm holding it. Yes, there's more. I do, I do love recording with Tiny Tim. That what we made for that album, I thought was a concise album. Okay. Yeah. You know, I have extra stuff, and what would there's also on the same label. Uh, oh no, a different label actually. Uh, a different label. We did a record called Tiny Tim's America. That to mm-hmm. me is the ne- is another phase of the Rare Moment series. That if people want to check that out, that is a very cool vinyl record. And the songs are a lot of a lot of uh, songs immigrant. I would call them immigrant songs. Tiny was very interested in the idea of different cultures bringing their songs into American popular music. Mm-hmm. So there's songs that are kind of like German songs or Yiddish and you know Yiddish mm-hmm. songs. And really funny, really funny stuff. And from the 30s and or I don't think I don't think even as recent as the 40s. I think 30s and 20s. Yeah, but right. immigrant songs. So that's Tiny Tim's America. That's a really thematic album. Those were based on tapes that were found after he passed. 
mm-hmm. he really it seems like he really enjoyed working with me because when he did die sadly in the 90s yeah. he left a lot of the tapes that we had done on top of a stack and had my name on it to contact oh. me wow. so the nice thoughtful that's that was very sweet. thoughtful of him wow so so since since then I get called when there's a Tiny Tim project. Often I get a phone call like, oh, can you help us finish this project, you know, this album? So with Tiny Tim's America, we added, I like to add a few instruments because I know he loved, he loved to have musical arrangements, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I try to add like his instruments he might have liked. On that one, we put a tuba and we added some, you know, some cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, not a lot of whole uh, uh, more, people more, use a tuba, yeah. Yeah, or we, yeah, we use it for bass <laughs> and more ukuleles, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. More, more, Sometimes more is more, sometimes less is more, but we... Yeah. I like yeah. I like making his records sound more finished. So that was just from a cassette that he left behind. Yeah, and uh, I love that album. That's Tiny Tim's America. So the two albums that I produce are, are uh, I've never seen a straight banana and Tiny Tim's America. But there's more. There's more. There's always something that we find. I have to give him more of a listen because I, you know, I think most people only know Tiny Tim from that one song, Tip Tip yeah. Pull Ups. And our younger listeners won't even know who he is. And then there's a lot of people that just know his name. I know. That's it. Just I know. Name. He's just the name. I know. People. Yeah. yeah. Listen, for some artists that I work with and some artists that work in my life, I feel a part of my job is to keep their, uh, if, at least their name, their name and their yeah. legacy alive. Mm-hmm. Now, what Tiny, the thing to keep in mind when you listen to Tiny is that he's really a, like a musicologist of sorts who is performing songs from different eras and really mm-hmm. educating us about oh, the yeah. history of popular music. Mm-hmm. So as long as you keep that in mind and know that it's not, it's frivolous, it can sound frivolous, but it's also, there's more, there's more to it, you know? And he has a lot of range of voices. They're based on like that falsetto. It's not just something that he created. That mm-hmm. is based on a pruning style of the 1920s yeah. where men would sing in a high vo- mm-hmm. vocal like that. You know, R&B's, R&B singers have a, a falsetto they use mm-hmm. sometimes. Think yeah, of Smokey yeah. Robinson or the other. Yeah. Well, the, you know, they, that there's a legacy of that. And it's like mm-hmm. he was going back to that legacy men would sing in different ranges, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then he, of course, he made it silly and he had this effeminacy that he would add to it all. But <laughs> yeah. that is just part, that's part of his thing. And he was performing in gay and lesbian clubs in New mm-hmm. York. Yeah. Yeah. And he 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 made it he made it campy, you know, mm-hmm. for that audience. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so as you, it's part of it's part of the thing. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So as you um, became a young adult, uh, what were some of the bands? What were you into? What were you What were you listening to that that inspired you uh, to start uh, yeah. your own band to to move on to uh, the next band or do your next uh, project? What were some inspirations? Like think of yourself as the eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old. Okay. At that age, I was listening to punk, a lot of punk rock. Mm-hmm. And- and I, w- I really liked American and British punk music. Um, I liked I liked streamlined music that was really like you, like we said you, or early U two where you just had, mm-hmm. had these sort of streamlined productions. I liked <clears throat> bands like the Buzzcocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very I I liked I liked punk that had, had a pop sensibility. I liked songs with a hook. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Susie, Susie and the Banshees. I, yeah. I like yeah. all of the bands, honestly. Yeah. When Devo came out, I thought that was pretty cool and mm-hmm. modern. Mm-hmm. I like I Brian Eno. I like Brian Eno's ambient records. Yeah. I like um, I like a lot of music, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you're just I always you're a lover David, of I lo- music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I am. Yeah. I like David Bowie, and I like. And my mm-hmm. favorite band probably was T T Rex overall. Like okay. more than most anything else, I love Mark Bolin and T Rex okay. because. It covered 
it kind of like came between. So it's not like vintage like Beatles, which I love, mm-hmm. but T Rex was like a modern a modernization of rock and roll when it came out. It was like a modern. It was like a little more modern stylistically than the '60s rock. And I mean, it was like a, this was a new sound. Yeah. And I think a lot of punk music comes out of T Rex. And I think David Bowie got a lot from T Rex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had his eye on Mark Boland. Like Mark, Mark was a, an innovator. He was he was like a a, a wink at the past and an eye to the future. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Let's get back to Bowie uh, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get back to Bowie. Yeah. Okay. We wanted to okay. talk a little bit about the bongos. You were together from 80 to 87. We're still together sometimes. We still play okay. together. We never really, the, the bongos never really broke up. I just, okay. all, all of us, not just me, all of us wanted to do other things after we had been playing solidly for seven years. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had other ideas that we wanted to do and we have, we're different. I mean, we even though we came together and could create that sound, mm-hmm. we have a lot of different um, we have a lot of different, um, you know, desire, musical desires that we wanted to to cover. Uh, yeah, that were that were always exactly like the bongos. So yeah, so mm-hmm. we we stopped performing around that time. But then we, we've certainly reformed and regrouped all the time. Like whenever, okay. whenever something comes up, this sounds this sounds fun. We played at Lincoln Center last year here in New York. Oh okay. And and we played uh, some se- several shows, outdoor events in Philadelphia and jersey just Mm -hmm. area things that we when we get together we try to do a few shows together and then everybody goes back home they they don't all live here so you're still together just taking it slowly (laughs) just here and there (laughs) yeah (laughs) once in a while it seems like in the summers we sometimes do not this year i don't think because but we do have some releases coming up here we re-signed with rca records last year um for the for our catalog so so what what we're doing is um we're doing like catalog releases that of did not come out then or like uh, I'm finding we're finding tracks that we had remixed or created then mm-hmm. that never came out. So we just put out a dance remix this a couple months or two months ago, I think, on uh, comes out through Sony Legacy, but it's RCA records. Yeah. And then this year will be an anniversary of Numbers with Wings, our first mm-hmm. RCA EP. And so we're doing an expanded version with, I think, nine or nine to 12 live bonus tracks that we've never released and that'll come out yeah. uh, as part of that project. And okay. probably in September, I think September was the anniversary month. 
So the years uh, that you're talking about, the early to mid '80s, this is uh, this is yeah. definitely the time of music videos, MTV and then VH1, and so yeah, yeah. numbers with wings, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I I always heard of the bongos, I, and I you guys played at Maxwell's, I think, a lot in Hoboken. Well, that's because that's because that was our home venue. Okay. Yes, yeah. We, Maxwell's was a restaurant. We lived around the corner from Maxwell's. All of us, mm-hmm. we had it. We lived together at the uh, the, the bongos okay. originally were a trio. Trio. There was three guys, and and we lived right around the corner from Maxwell's, mm-hmm. and with a mutual friend who was Glenn Morrow, who then later formed a group called the Individuals, who you may or may not know, also headed a la- a very good record label, Bar None Records from yeah. Hoboken. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, Glenn was our group. Yeah, we know Bar None. Yeah. That's yes. Yeah. A lot of a lot of groups. None is was a like, it is a great label. Yeah. Uh, I've even made an album for Bar None, a Glow in 2010. Uh, but they also have Yola Tango and other groups. A very, mm-hmm. a very good label. Well, Glenn was our bandmate originally when we started, when we were starting to play together. And he and I went to Maxwell's, which was a new restaurant that had just been purchased. It was an old bar that Max, mm-hmm. was called Maxwell's Tavern. It was yeah. literally a worker's bar for the Maxwell House Coffee Factory workers. Oh. Okay. But a, a, young, a, young, a young family uh, purchased it and made it into a more modern, um, restaurant, but they had space, and we thought, "Wow, they they could have music here." So we went to the owners, the Fallon family, Steve Fallon, and said, "You know, could we? Uh, do you want to have live music here? We could do it." You know, mm-hmm. and we started playing, and we were the first, definitely the first band that wow. played there. We wow. set up in the restaurant, cool. in the re- in the restaurant. <laughs> it was in the restaurant area. Not there was no yeah. stage. We just set up where the tables and chairs were. We set up our band, and the, it was. It was fun, but it was also problematic for a restaurant because we were loud and all like yeah. the wine glasses would shatter and yeah. things would uh, <laughs> uh, rattle, really? rattle yeah. off the walls. You can't and, turn down you know, the drum and police, kit. No, and, and we nor, nor would we want to have. And also well, then, uh, then the, 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 over, the fire department would close it down because of the overcrowding. And yeah. So it became a problem. So what happened was the back room, which is where we rehearse, our rehearsal room became the venue. And mm-hmm. we were able to control the sound better back. They were able to control the sound better. Mm-hmm. So we would invite. We would. We were very close with the with the family with Steve Fallon, and uh, we played there all the time. But we also like Rob, our bass, the Bongos bass player, would do the flyer. Would design the flyers for their upcoming mm-hmm. shows, and we were very connected to Maxwell. So it wasn't just that we played there. We lived there basically. Yeah. yeah our yeah. drummer was also uh, dr- our drummer Frank was also the cook at Maxwell's. Yeah. You know, he he was the he was the cook and he he wrote the men he created the menu for Maxwell's. So we were very connected to that venue. Mm-hmm. So we were through when it became so popular, but it was it was a surprise because that was just our local hangout. Wow. Mm-hmm. Great story. So um yeah, Numbers with Wings. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about the song <laughs> yeah. Numbers with Wings. That was yeah. like yeah, your biggest well, song. You had a video yeah, on MTV. I Maybe. I think our biggest song, yeah. Okay. Biggest in terms of exposure, not biggest yeah. in terms of uh, sales, but mm-hmm. uh, it was okay. So we had got signed early, very early on to a British label, which I loved, named Fetish Records. Okay. Fetish was a, a very cool British label that had mostly industrial. Do you know what I mean by industrial bands? Yeah. Oh yeah. Throbbing, throbbing gristle Ministry was on and, Fetish. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Fetish was in that style. It was British was a London-based label. A very young owner who's twenty-one. So of course, to us he was old because we were not yet twenty-one. <laughs> I, re- but, um, I remember those days. Yeah, <laughs> twenty-one yeah, was so old. He, he was twenty-one. He owned mm-hmm. a label, Fetish Records. So he wanted to sign us. So we did. We were quite happy to get signed, and we we signed Fetish Records. Made a lot of uh, singles for Fetish. 
mm-hmm. all of those single and I really enjoyed it. Went to, we went to England and toured Europe uh, based on our connection with Fetish Records and he was great with us. We then when we came back to the States, we decided we should put an album out like an, al- an actual album, which was compiled of all of those singles. OK, that was that was our first record drums along the Hudson. And I love that record. It's it's very dis- disparate or disparate, whatever the pronunciation, disparate. Yeah. Like the songs are really different because they're done as separate singles, mm-hmm. but they yeah. hold together. They they come together really in a nice way on that album. I love it. So that was Drums Along the Hudson. Of course, most of it was really recorded along the Thames. We were in England making that record. So oh. it's really mistitled because <laughs> we were funny. not along. I live, I, I live along the Hudson now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But yeah. it, we were not here. We were in England making that, most of that record. Yeah. But that came out. And then we got a great opportunity to tour with the B-52s. Okay. Wow. Yeah, we yeah. want to get in. Those. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. Tell us about that. So B fifty twos. Well, we, well, it was a. Fa- I love them, and it's they were a fantastic to tour with, and the, the band they really worked well together with our sound and their sound, and even the staging of it looked really mm-hmm. cool. The way that they, they had a great stage, and we were it's big big venues. Now we we went yeah. from Maxwell's to very large venues, and and we learned a lot about a tour from them, right? Mm-hmm. But it was during that time that RCA started sniffing around about what we were doing because we were getting big audience. We were playing to big audiences. Mm-hmm. We were making videos before Numbers with Wings. We had videos mm-hmm. for at least three or four of the songs on Drums Along the Hudson also. Um, so we were making some noise. We also were on the Billboard chart with the T-Rex song Mambo Sun. Okay. So, so we already had established a lot before we signed to RCA. Right. So you're uh, well received along with this tour, yeah. uh, along with the B-52s, uh, touring, yeah. the whole, touring the entire U.S. or touring where? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most of the U.S. Yeah. I mean, all, yeah, U.S. for sure, but mm-hmm. not all of you. We did at least, I would say, between 30 and 40 shows with them that year. For some of our younger listeners, uh, you know, the B-52s, in my mind, very instrumental in bringing a new sound, just bold and powerful right there. And I think it's 1979. Uh, the album, uh, you know, you think of the 80s. Right. But, Without, uh, so I, it was 79 for them. But we, we toured with them in their mid 80s. Yeah, right. Because right. they, by the, we, we toured with them when they made their album called Mesopotamia. Do you know what that, do you know that one? That was I've produced by David one. Byrne. Okay. Yeah. Mesopotamia is really very cool. The, almost experimental mm-hmm. in a way. <laughs> and that was, that, 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 it's cool, quite cool. Yeah. So David Byrne, so you can imagine the Talking Heads leader, lead singer, mm-hmm. lead head is producing mm-hmm. You know uh, that uh and that was a really fun album so that we were touring with them when they were promoting that album mm-hmm. and it was an absolute blast uh and we did end up back in my hometown in tampa with that show so my parents came to see us play <laughs> oh, was... with the b-52s mm-hmm. and that was really fun because they hadn't really seen us on tour too much you know so that was fun for us okay. um but that led to rca wanting to sign us we took our time because we were so indie mm-hmm. in our thinking we were so uh, do it yourself and independent. Mm-hmm. We could because even when we we're signed to Fetish, we still had so much control over everything we did. Right. Ask yourself: Are you? Do you want to be yeah. uh, led and told what to do a little bit more? Right. And the the reason that we decided to do it, and I, I had no regrets because I I really still like RCA Records, and I I love working with them even now with, as it's Sony Legacy that owns it. The the thing was that we couldn't do it all ourselves when we were on tour every day. When we started doing 300 shows a year, that's almost every day, yeah. and we couldn't take care of, we couldn't we couldn't take care of the business side of it anymore at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then that's when we decided, just as a group, we're like, yeah, let's go with a company that can help us do it because we really could mm-hmm. not do it anymore. 
when it was just Rob and I, it was Rob Norris and I, when we were kind of, you know, putting together our press kit and we were, we were having a lot of fun doing it ourselves when we could, but then there was no time for it because we were always on the go, always trying to get to the next gig on time. And there was always a record store to visit, a radio station to visit. There was no, you know, you had to always do a whole day's worth of activities. Yeah. It wasn't just the show at night. If it was just the show at night, we might have been able to still self-manage. But when we had to have a schedule of record store signings and, like I said, radio interviews at more than one station in each city, and then yeah. do a, a sound check, and then mm-hmm. a concert, and then an after party, and then be on the road to the next mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Sleep and then travel. Was, time. And that, that's oh, it. There was no, no, no sleep. There was never <laughs> any sleep. But you think maybe it would be it, probably a little easier now with technology but because think of that back then there's yeah. no cell phone yeah. yeah like like even if you had to reschedule something or you could get on your laptop if mm-hmm. you had wi-fi at the mm-hmm. hotel like what the kids don't understand now is you actually <laughs> said the words often where's a phone <laughs> i need a phone i mean you know and you know yeah it's like unbelievable to some of our young listeners the the lack of communication and information flow that okay. could also be good so yeah. <laughs> uh, oh let me tell you create the creativity is better without a lot of communication. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but true, partially true what you're saying, yeah. but partially not true because we had to physically be at these different places, not virtually. Mm-hmm. We had to physically be in a record store to sign records. We oh, had to yeah, physically yeah. be at a radio station. Mm-hmm. So even even if we even if I was like Instagramming the whole time or whatever, it doesn't matter. I still wouldn't have time to, to, to take care of the contracts and the mm-hmm. next, uh, you know, uh, yeah. advance the next shows and all those yeah. things that we needed a team for. Mm-hmm. Even that, you know, and we were pretty early. By the time I was a solo artist, we, uh, my tour managers were already hooked up with the internet right away. We were already pre, we were doing advance work on email at the very mm-hmm. beginning of its availability. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really about the technology. It was about the time element that it takes to go physically to these places. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, because when you, when, you when you get to a city, it's like, okay, now we have to get to the radio show. Okay, where's that? Where's, mm-hmm. the, where's the record <laughs> store? And, mm-hmm. what, and now we have to get to the venue. It's just too much. It was too much. Mm-hmm. So we were quite happy to sign with RCA. I really liked it. I mean, not all the guys, I don't think, felt like it was the best thing for us at the time. Okay. And, you know, it's very it's very common for musicians to complain about their record labels. Um, and I understand that because you're, you're relinquishing um, some amount of power, for instance, release dates and all kinds of distribution aspects of it are really in the hands of a record company. However, I was happy to relinquish that power to RCA. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the process because I, I learned so much. They also yeah. gave us very good budgets to record. So instead of just having like, one afternoon to make the record. Now we could go in for a month or two or three. Mm-hmm. We did a beat hotel, our second second album. We were at the Electric Lady for some for months, you know. And that's where I learned how to make records. Yeah. yeah. So without our without RCA, I would not have had that education like that. Really. Yeah. Right. You're really willing to work in the industry and work with it and learn from it, and then. Uh, uh, and I understand about people complaining, you know, almost everybody yeah, complains sure. about their, their boss and their work environment, right? Sure, <laughs> people are complaining sure. all I the never, time. And so mm-hmm. that's who they're complaining yeah. to. Yeah. I, I never saw them as our boss. I always saw them. And I, that's right. That's what people yeah. feel that their label is like their boss. I never felt that. I always felt they were like our team. Like, that's okay, good. let's make this happen. Let's get on the radio. Let's, yeah. let's, let's, you know, <laughs> let's make it happen. And so that's how I worked with them. Yeah. And I still do. Still do now. 
And, uh, you know, that's just me. That's just, I love the industry. Like I said, yeah. Yeah. We only, we have like four minutes. So are you willing to come back? But are you willing, because then we'll get into your book and we'll get into Bowie. Bowie and the shows okay. that you're doing. Book and okay. Bowie, yeah. All right. Yeah, because I, I definitely want to tell you about not just the book, but the Carnegie Hall yeah. co- book ho- concert on uh, yeah. November 19th. Oh, that okay. sounds great. New York. Okay. All right, let's take, a, let's take a non-commercial break. <laughs> okay. All right. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Pick up on one and leave the other behind. Not often easy and not often kind Did you ever have to make up your mind? Did you ever have to finally decide? Say yes to one and let the other one ride So many changes and tears you must hide Did you ever have to finally decide? Sometimes there's one with big blue eyes Cute as a bunny With head out of here and plenty of money And just when you think she's that one in the world Your heart gets stolen by some mousy little girl And then you know you better make up your mind Pick up on one and leave the other behind It's not often easy and not often kind Did you ever have to make up your mind? Welcome back to No Good Music. No damn good music here. I'm sorry. Did I say damn? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, the book. Welcome back. (laughs) That's all right. Settle down. Settle down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Look at the signs. Says applause. (laughs) Says when you're going to applaud. Thank you for coming back. Wow. wow. My pleasure. Was that a reference to a John Sebastian song? Yes. Welcome back. Yeah. Yeah. He sang the theme to the Welcome Back Carter. Yes, I know. I know. He plays a big part in the in my book. Uh, John Sebastian does. He, he was really integral to the Greenwich Village scene from the very beginning because he lived. He was born here or lived mm-hmm. here on Washington Square Park. Yeah. And so he had friend. a big resurgence with that with that song. So you're, yeah. You're friends with him, I take it. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah the uh, I love your your last album. I think it was from 2016. Yeah, yeah. Because we're yeah. going to talk about the book, but I also want to mention the album because mm-hmm. I think it's a good companion piece. Besides being a companion to the book, that was how I started writing the book, was by okay. making that album. So the album came first. It was a project that uh, I had some research because I didn't really know all that, the songs or okay. the, even the artists. I, I wasn't that familiar so, so much with Richard and Mimi Farina or... Um, Someone like maybe Fred Neal. I kind of knew the name and I knew he wrote Everybody's Talking mm-hmm. that Nilsson recorded. But I didn't know the story. I didn't, I didn't know he was the host of the afternoon shows at the Cafe Wa down the block from here where I live, where okay. so many artists got their start. I didn't know all that. So the the making that album and researching those songs where I sang them is what started me writing this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the... And let's show your book here. Yep. And we need to say... We do you. use a little bit of video on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. So music and okay, revolution. Okay, good. Oh, you got it there too. Music yeah. and revolution. Yeah, of course. I'm just... Yeah. I'm, I'm just I have to it. say, I didn't have time to read the book, but... You will. You should. And you will, yeah. I hope. <laughs> I did, I did yeah. go through it a little bit, but there's so much information in that book. And yeah, let yep. tell us about but, the... I was just going to say for our listeners, we keep saying the book, the book, but yeah. So music 
and Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s by mm-hmm. Richard yeah. Barone. Correct. I just want to say that all there for yeah, people. Yeah. Good. <laughs> listening to <laughs> that's the name of it that's it's yes. important at this full title because that is specifically about it's about greenwich village in the 1960s very very specifically mm-hmm. why and why this was important like why does it matter this i think this book lays out why it matters well so tell us why I mean, it matters one thing, it? yeah my pleasure i you know i live i've lived in greenwich village for a long time but i never really i didn't understand all of the history really i didn't understand because for one thing, when I first moved here, I was on tour with the bongos all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I I never was really here, really. I just mm-hmm. I, I kept my stuff here. Yeah. And then and then when I really spent more time, I you know, just walking the streets, I could sense, I could sense the history. This book is also about sensing things and feeling things. It's about how things feel. And I could feel that something happened on these streets when I was walking. You know, I knew I knew that something happened. And of course, mm-hmm. it's in our it's, if you're in the music, if you love the music industry and if you love uh, popular music, then you know that something happened here in the 60s because Jimi Hendrix was here mm-hmm. and Bob Dylan was here. Right. And uh, just so many Richie Havens and so many others. This is where they lived and performed and mm-hmm. all within a very small space, a very small radius of a mm-hmm. few blocks. And so for something those who are cooking. younger, for the younger generation, just to be clear, this is in New York City. This is lower Manhattan. I'm just well, this I, is in the lower half of Manhattan. Yeah, yeah lower uh, half. Yeah, of and of course, of course, uh, the book is written not for old people. The book is written <laughs> yeah. for young people. Right. The book is written for my students, and it's written for young readers. That's the whole idea of this book. It's not really to, to tell somebody something they already know. It's to teach about a history that should not be ignored. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it, Greenwich Village never really get the recognition that other places do like Chicago, the blues scene in Chicago or the Seattle grunge scene. Get, mm-hmm. They all get a lot of love. But Greenwich Village was really the instigator of a lot of that, because this is where this is at that point in the 60s is when artists took control of the music industry. You have to realize how important that was when artists demanded on recording their own songs that they wrote instead yeah. of being handed material. Think of how sim- just that simple thought, that idea was groundbreaking that the record label no longer gets say, okay, here's 12 songs you're going to do. We're going to record for your album. That's how it used to be. Yeah. When they would, and they would often get the songs from the Brill building or the song factories that would crank out songs for you. Right, or right. you would cover songs from broad, you would cover songs from Broadway shows. Even the Beatles did songs from the music man. Or, you know, mm-hmm. they, it was very common to not write your own music. music. Yeah. And I think, and I think Go there's ahead. a lot of people who don't even know that who don't know that in the mid sixties, there would be someone uh, maybe in, you know, maybe in Memphis, but somewhere, um, that's where I'm picturing, uh, where this is the song that you're going to sing. You're a singer, mm-hmm. and this yeah. is the band you're going to play with. Go. It's not, and, and there have been people who said, well, actually, uh, I really wanted to, to sing this song. No. <laughs> you know, they just said, this is what you're singing. This is your band. You yeah. don't know them, but go ahead and sing to them anyway. You don't never know. I them. think most notably was Motown. Yeah. You know, that. Hit. Well, yeah, but but yeah. Motown, those are singer, yeah, those are singing groups, those were vocal groups. Yeah. Like it's a little, it's different. I certainly don't. I mean, that is one of some of the best pop music ever made. Yeah, yeah. But the Motown groups were vocal groups, so they were quite. That was the way they worked. Like this, okay, we're gonna get this song, you know. And they were, uh, they had great songwriters. It was like team. Mm-hmm. That was a big team effort. That's yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, the, the, and you know, and but they, an artist like Stevie Wonder in Motown, 
definitely had his eye on Greenwich Village and really right away covered Blown in the Wind by Bob Dylan. And he was, mm-hmm. he must have been, uh, Stevie must have been a, 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 not even, a, I think maybe 15 years old when he wow. recovered, recorded yeah. Blown in the Wind. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he had his eye, they had their, the, Greenwich Village became a source of new material too, for Motown and others. And also inspired, like, uh, I'm not sure what label uh, Sam Cooke was on. He was very inspired by, say, Blown in the Wind, the King of the Village, enough to write uh, A Change is Going to Come. You know, just, so this started, there was like a wave of uh, of creativity, and not just creativity, but also writing songs with a message that started in Greenwich Village right. here. Started here. Why did it start here? That's what the book is mm-hmm. about. Okay. It started here for a lot of reasons. It started here because of Pete Seeger and the folk singers and how they had such message music. It kind of just morphed into a pop, more of a pop music, but it mm-hmm. comes out of folk music. It comes out of Pete Seeger, Lead Belly. Mm-hmm. Lead Belly is very important. And Woody Guthrie. Mm-hmm. It, from that yeah. triumvirate, I think was a big inspiration for this next generation that started writing their own songs. And even, even those artists that I just mentioned, Seeger did a lot of covers of songs, of folk songs, of fo- real folk songs, old songs. <laughs> I'm talking yeah. songs from a hundred years prior. The and so did folk, Bob, yeah. when Bob Dylan started. Yeah, and it's, mm-hmm. because we talk about the folk revival, y'all, no, uh, yeah. and there's all these uh, definitions of that, but really the folk, even, even Pete Seeger was a folk revival artist. He mm-hmm. was reviving old folk songs. Yeah. And Bob Dylan, when he started, did no originals. At first, he did all covers. And we, I just was listening to a tape of him that his manager, who I interviewed in the book, Terry Thal, had of him performing at the Gaslight venue. And it's, mm-hmm. he only had one or two original songs in that. It's yeah. all old folk songs. That's what they did. It was a slow process where they started putting in originals. And this mm-hmm. book talks about that. It's very exciting. It's very exciting to me to see how popular music changed so that now artists were now talking about stuff they wanted to talk about that they wrote yeah. their own feelings yeah. whether it's relationships or feelings about the war in vietnam or civil rights it didn't matter what the subject was but it was their subject you see what i mean yeah, it changed yeah. the way we think about now when we see artists we imagine that they probably wrote what we hear them sing in the yeah. in the most part when we hear coldplay or whoever we hear you know you yeah. start you yeah. imagine you just know that they wrote it you know more so with bands yeah. though because I know a lot of pop artists use the same, like Kelly Clarkson yeah. uses the same writers that Pink uses. I mean, may, maybe Pink co-writes some things, but oh yeah, oh yeah. I remember yeah, yeah. the there's still there's still that yeah. The new Beyonce album, which I we do a podcast where we randomly pick three albums from last year mm-hmm. uh, on mm-hmm. a top, and we have to listen to them. So I had to listen to listen to them, study and review. But what them, I'm yeah. getting at is that the the one song when you go on Apple Music, you can see at the top who wrote the song, and no lie, there mm-hmm. were like 18 songwriters. I'm like, how can one yeah. song? Okay, you write this line. I'm gonna write. To, I mean, 18 people to write a song. Richard, maybe you have an answer to that. What? How did that? How did that happen? <laughs> that doesn't. That's not normal, right? <laughs> that's a financial thing. Yeah. Oh, right. Right. Financially, okay. eight people, 18 people. Yeah. Those people all want to cut. Yeah. yeah. They want a piece of the action. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't imagine writing a song with 18 people, but if yeah. they, if, mm-hmm. if it were, but on the other hand, if it works for them and, you know, mm-hmm. someone contributes one idea or one, who knows what they, if they, they're just there. They're part of this team that mm-hmm. wrote it somehow. Yeah. That's fine. I, that's fine with me. You know, I'm a very accepting person. Mm-hmm. I'm very accepting <laughs> different creative, pro- whatever process works for people. Mm-hmm. I'm down with that. 
but you know what I'm saying about the Greenwich Village thing too yeah. is that it's, so it's the '60s, but that gave us the '70s, yeah. Because then it's all about the singer songwriter in the '70s, you know, yeah. and um, it became you know people like James Taylor, who then was a '70s artist, really was in Greenwich Village with his group, The Flying Machine, playing it down the block here, and that's where he created the the idea of writing his own songs. I mean, this was a it was a a, a like a think tank of songwriting. It was a, also they knew each other and they would compare notes and mm -hmm. it was like a group effort that they would, yeah. you know, everybody was in competition with each other in some way to outdo the songwriting, uh, to outdo each other. So it was just a perfect storm of, of songwriting that mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it changed the music industry. in so the two, two ways uh, right off the bat is that the A&R person now was not really so much about picking their song, but maybe helping direct kind of song you would write, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. that. Uh, and also for artists that did not write, and of course there are a lot of artists that don't, think of all the previous generation artists, people like say Peggy Lee, who had been a 50s artist, who was still recording in the 60s. Now mm -hmm. the scouts were looking to Greenwich Village for some material. Okay. So she would maybe hear a song. They would they would hear a song by Tim Harden or uh, or someone you know of Dylan perhaps or uh, or Fred Neal who I just mentioned. And mm -hmm. they would those songs now were the ones that people were covering, not the Brill Building Factory songs. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think of it as yeah. the fact their factory songs are created in a uh, workplace. Now we've got songs created in the in the field. You know, in the work in the workplace of a, of a venue. You know, mm -hmm. in in the cafe wa and these. So anyway, it was it changed it changed the way we perceive popular music, and that's what the book chronicles. And it's it's more than that because it's about their relationships with each other. That not just the competition, but the love affairs, the relationships that created the music. Because that it came out of places, it came out of real mm -hmm. situations, and yeah. so this book explores that in a storytelling mm -hmm. way. Now, did you get to interview people that were there at the yeah, musicians? Yeah, of course. And, okay. Yeah, I I interviewed. A, I did well over eighty interviews for this book. Okay, wow. And many, wow. I tried to. I got people on the phone that hadn't talked before about maybe the, these details, mm -hmm. and I not just not just the famous ones. Like mm -hmm. I, Donovan, my, my one of my close friends is Donovan, mm -hmm. who yeah, yeah. was a '60s artist who who uh, and an eternal artist, but a '60s became famous in the 60s, but he had his eye on the, he's definitely had his eye on the Greenwich Village scene from England. And he lived in, in the, he's from Scotland, but definitely was mm -hmm. in the British scene. He came, that was your first con concert too. Is that correct? It was, that was, yeah. 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 I, I have a ticket. I actually sent him my text with him oh. a picture of my, <laughs> I was one ticket one day when I first saw him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, we're good friends. And he, he, uh, right away, I called him and I said, I was working on this book and he advised me to write about, People that nobody's heard about there's no one the yeah. names that no one knows because mm -hmm. that's where this as he said that's where the story is and it's true because mm -hmm. those people have no agenda they don't have an image to uphold or they don't have a, a public by that i mean a public image yeah. they are not famous so those not famous people are the ones that will tell me the truth mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so that it's a lot of the interviews were the, the guitar players the producers the back the managers that that really helps me tell the true full story are those people thinking back to uh the 60s mm -hmm. what were some of the factors 
that made it such a good breeding ground for creativity. What, why, why there? I mean, you're, you're in the center of New York city. <laughs> uh, that, mm-hmm. that's something, uh, the multi-ethnic multi-racial that probably has something to do with it. What, what, what were some of the factors that, that made it there at Greenwich village instead of somewhere else? Well, those are two of those. Are, there's many, many factors. Those are two of them. They, mm-hmm. the part of, uh, cultures. Yeah. Uh, that's one. Uh, the fact that it's New York City, which is the center of that at that time, that was the center of the music industry, mm-hmm. of not just of the entertainment industry. Yeah. Now, of course, it's a lot in L.A. But mm-hmm. at the time, I would say all of the major labels in the early were based in New York City. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So people were coming here to be if they wanted to be in the music industry. So we had a lot of musicians, a high quality breed of musicians was yeah. coming mm-hmm. to New, were coming to New York. Right. Yeah. Okay. And the, the village was affordable then. So not so much now, by yeah. the way. Yeah. But yeah. it was affordable then to live here. So when um, Paul Simon, mm-hmm. you know, on the first Simon and Garfunkel album, does a song called Bleecker Street, yeah. he says, $30 pays your rent on Bleecker Street. He uh-huh. lays it on the line. <laughs> I, I, I researched that. I researched mm-hmm. that. And honestly, yeah. there were very few apartments that were 30 mm-hmm. a month. He's yeah, talking, yeah. he must be talking about having a roommate. He, yeah. Between yeah. 60 and 100, though, he could have gotten a place. Yeah. So yeah. With, a room, with a roommate, $30 pays your yeah. rent. Yeah. Yeah. So not exaggeration, uh, having a roommate, right? And you did yeah. that song on your, your album. Well, that's okay. why one of the reasons I did it, because he's one of the few that actually laid down some specific fact Bleecker mm-hmm. Street on his did song. You, did yeah. you change There's the all... price, though, in the song? Or no, <laughs> no I didn't change <laughs> reads his crooked rhyme holy holy is his sacrament thirty dollars pays your rent on the I didn't make it. I did not make it market value because now okay, it would have okay. been ten thousand. It would have been ten thousand dollars pays your rent on Bleecker Street. It would yeah, have yeah. been honestly. It's like uh, like paying a paying a, do- a buck and a half just to see them on. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, but, that's but that, Those were some of the fact. Those are some of the factors. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of people came to New York at that time, not knowing if they were going to be an actor or a singer or on a Broadway show, they just wanted to be in show business, in quotes. So right. a lot of them, the folk scene was happening at the early 60s. The folk scene was, that was the vibe. So a lot of them drifted into folk singing from acting. Mm-hmm. Several, yeah. several people I wrote about in the book were actors. The Clancy Brothers, which were an Irish singing group that were very important. They even had their own label that other artists were signed to. They came here to be actors. Hmm. Uh, and they, had, they, had, they were bringing Irish plays which were performed in the village, but really their careers took off as singers with the Clancy mm-hmm. Brothers. They were big influences on David, on, um, on, the, on Bob Dylan. I almost said David Bowie, because sometimes yeah. I equate those two as, dif- as different sides of a coin. Just yeah. I'll talk oh, about yeah. that later if you want. But, oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but the, they were, uh, uh, Clancy Brothers were big influences on, on Dylan. Uh, he took a lot of their melodies and 
made them into songs, you know, uh, Irish, Irish folk music was a thing. And the, and Carolyn Hester, who's one of the stars, one of my stars in the book, I actually, I think, uh, she came here to be possibly an actress, but mm-hmm. became a folk singer. It was very common. So you kind of, whatever, wherever, you know, the, your career took you, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you went. Yeah. But the, all of that was part of this scene. Mm-hmm, right. This is a yeah. time where you can say, excuse me, you can sing your poetry and people are listening. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. Well, that, yeah. That's what I see, the folk revival. The beat, all right, so the folk music and, okay, this is what, came, to be, to be uh, scientific about it, look, mm-hmm. the, the, the folk revival is here. The beat poetry movement is right next door. And, and right in the middle is also jazz happening in the village with the village vanguard, which was playing folk and jazz. A lot of these mm-hmm. venues had folk and jazz. So you get jazz musicians playing folk music with the lyrics influenced by beat poets. Yeah. Like, what does that give you? Wow. That gives you sub, sub, subterranean homesick blues and all these mm-hmm. Dylan songs that were like, <laughs> that he's trying to be like Allen Ginsberg, a hero of his, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's trying to be like Ginsberg with the lyrics. And then he's also been listening to jazz. So the beats are now different. And, yeah, yeah. you know, this bebop jazz, you know? Yeah. So it's like all these things came together in a very unique way, right? in this neighborhood because there were so many venues and you get on the same night, you'd get jazz, folk, blues, you'd get uh, poetry in between, you'd get poetry. Some of the venues like the Gaslight was actually a poetry venue who would squeeze in folk music in between the poets, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The the featured thing was the poetry. And then you'd get a folk singer doing a couple songs before the next poet came on. And then there was also stand-up comics or so-called comics like uh, Lenny Bruce, who were really making social commentaries. You see what I mean? The social commentary. So it's like variety. Of Lenny Bruce. Yeah, Yeah. huge variety. All of that. But that becomes the song. That becomes becomes part of the songwriting. All of those things together. And that was almost like back to vaudeville. You see what I mean, though? You know, with with all the different acts. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure, and that showbiz, uh, that, that tradition of like any show yeah, yeah. Uh, was definitely part of That's a, a lot of venues would look at that way so that it wasn't just, it wasn't boring. It wasn't a one after another the same. It was, you would get a few different types mm-hmm. of acts and you get multiple acts in one night. You rarely went to go see a whole concert by one artist in yeah. the village. You would have <laughs> yeah. seen a few different people uh, on the same evening often and they uh, also a lot of these places i talk about in the book were coffee houses not bars because of that they could stay open all night they didn't have a liquor license to deal with so they didn't have they didn't have to close they didn't have to close at 2 or 3 a.m whatever the time would have been they could stay open all night you know like the gaslight people would play music there all night the sun would come up i think and Mm -hmm. and they would just be still jamming jamming you know wow i like to examine i like to think often about uh, race and uh, and how mm-hmm. b- there was a wall and uh, between yeah. what I'm just going to simply say black and white and you know uh, yeah and yeah. I'm thinking you know a decade before the mid 60s uh, people just because of skin shade aren't able to play together and be together and a decade later they are and everybody's just you know there's a lot of great things yeah. happening so this is a real transition for so many people who are. Uh, locked out of uh, literally by a locked door I know out of being on you know so any comments on the on the race piece for us of course yeah, it's a big you... part of the book is the in the first integrated nightclub uh possibly in America I think but maybe the north uh 
East, but was, you know, in the village cafe society. And that okay. venue was, um, you know, you may think of like in, in, in the Apollo, for instance, I guess, you have, mm-hmm. yeah, no, the, the uh, what is it? The, uh, the fame, the famous Harlem club, the, the, uh, and the, the, the claim to be claim to be integrated, but they would separate where audiences would sit. Like the <laughs> blacks would sit one in one place and whites would sit in another place. So that, oh. that wasn't really integrated. The f- truly integrated nightclub was Cafe Society in the village. And uh, the folk singers would sing there, but also Josh White, who was a very important blues, jazz, folk artist, very folk, really. Josh White became a superstar from there. See, and Billie Holiday performed mm-hmm. it. Her famous, when she performed really one of the first real true protest songs, and that the book kind of starts with that in a way. 1939. Right, I, saw, I, I watched that video just about a month ago. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Strange Fruit, Strange Fruit yeah. was yeah. an early song that yeah. she did, and mm-hmm. then a very important song, mm-hmm. and that was performed here for the first time in the village. So that even that integration idea, you know, the the folk scene was very white, but there were some. Len Chandler was an African American who was one of the first to write topical songs. He would write from the newspaper, literally from the <laughs> daily newspaper, and um and have songs about. And this was a big influence on Bob Dylan. See. Some people become famous and some people don't. That's just a fact of life. The people that, Bob Dylan to me is a secondary character in my book. Not because he's not the most famous or maybe even the most important, but he's not really the reason that I wrote this book. He is one of the players and he was very influenced by the others, by Len Chandler, black artist, right? Mm -hmm. Who was writing right out of the newspaper. And also, um, you know, uh, when you mentioned black and white, there's also, don't forget, the Native American. Mm-hmm. There was there, Buffy St. Marie and her, her she, and she brought in Patrick Skye, who became a very important uh, character on the scene, who produced many of the records for others, including Eric Anderson and, and others, important artists. Like these were Native Americans that also had their, not just their presence and their style, but also they had something to say about the, how uh, Native Americans had been treated. Yeah, that's so. I, so I, yes, integration in the village was important. Oh, absolutely. So this, it's not just black and white. You know, it, there there is uh, there are other factors too. There's also the Latino, like Jose Feliciano was in the village as a Puerto Rican. It was hard for him at first. A blind young teenage yeah. Puerto Rican playing acoustic guitar in the village. You know, yeah. It's like he was an yeah. a, a bit. He felt like a, a bit of a bit of an outcast. I think. Sure. I know him. He passed. I performed with him, and he's a brilliant mm-hmm. artist still. But I, you know, he did. He. I'm not sure he felt so accepted by all the others yeah. on the scene. Uh, I was happy to put them together with all with John Sebastian. We did a show in Central Park in 2018, and I had uh, Jesse Colin Young of the Young Bloods and. And M- Melanie and Maria mm-hmm. Muldaur. I and just like met I said, Melanie. I said Sebastian. Oh, she's great. Yeah. She, she's was great. At, she, she was at Chiller. She was in the same room yeah. with B.B. Um, Buell, and I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Oh, really? Did you mention? Yeah, B.B. Buell is a dear friend of mine, too. Yeah. B.B.'s great. We just saw her do a book event here in New York. She has a new book out, too, called Rebel Soul. I just bought, I bought that. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah she autographed yeah. it. Yeah. Very cool. Her, Jimmy yeah, was there. she's great. Her, her boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Husband. Husband. Husband, yeah. Okay. Husband, yeah. 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 Oh, okay. But, yeah. but, but, but yeah, the intri- that, that part of it is, is a part of the story and an important part of the music. You know, a lot of the songs that uh, were the first message songs that came out of the village were, were regarding civil rights. I think you know that. I mean, yeah. 
it morphed into excuse me it morphed into being more songs about the v vietnam war or anti-war songs but the very first batch uh, when that i can't say the very first some of the first protest songs actually dealt with the cold war which uh, -huh. uh was the I, the threat of nuclear war hanging mm. over these artists. Now, don't forget their ages. They're barely 20 years old, and mm -hmm. they're coming into a world in which they could be bombed at any second by Cuba mm -hmm. or Russia. Yeah. Really, Russia through yeah. Cuba, because they, that's where the missiles were. You know? and, so and this is it's after like, the Korean War and, and before the Vietnam War. Uh, that right? Yeah, so, there's that pocket. So some of the first songs were cold. Early '60s were really yeah. some Cold War songs, but then it morphed into uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, civil rights, folk music, and civil rights were very hand in hand. And one of the reasons they were was because Harry Belafonte was on the folk scene here in the village. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? Like Harry yeah, Belafonte yeah. was performing folk music here at the Vanguard. That's where he made his mm -hmm. big debut, and he was very close with Odetta, African American folk singer, and and. Um, and he would through Pete, through his friendship with Pete Seeger, he was able to bring folk singers to sing at the marches and the oh. March on Washington, especially then in yeah, the later sixties. Did that, not know he had a big part in that. Yeah. yeah. Harry Belafonte was a curator of the music for these fest for these events. So he would bring in the folk singers. Yeah. So folk and, and um folk and the civil rights movement were very hand in hand in the early sixties. Yeah. And but Harry as the sixties progressed. Harry just passed away recently, is that correct? I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. I got to work on a beautiful tribute by Donovan uh, to Harry Belafonte. We went to Jamaica to Harry's uh, where his family came from to uh -huh. do a tribute to Harry Belafonte in 2019, uh -huh. right before the pandemic. Uh -huh. Yeah. But yeah, great and very important artist and activist was Belafonte. But he was part of the village scene. Very. So he's a mm -hmm. he's a big part of the book, too. There's a lot of characters. You know, this is not just a, a two-person play. This is, mm -hmm. and that's what I mean about when nothing, it's nothing to disparage Bob Dylan, but he's not the most important. Yeah. I mean, someone like, you know, someone like, he's the most famous and that's great. Oh yeah, yeah. But he's not that's the most right. important because some of the, some of the instigators were real instigators that were true instigators, but there's a lot of them, you know, it's mm -hmm. not just one. Yeah. Belafonte's one and, you know, there are many, and you'll see in the book, there are Phil Oaks, was one of the most important topical type songs. I, I say that in quotes because he wrote everything, but he also wrote important topical songs. Yeah, yeah. So I urge our listeners to, you can probably get this on, do you have a website where they can get this or Amazon? People, or people, people can buy it anywhere Anywhere books are sold. It's at Amazon.com. Okay. And it's, all, it's also at my website if they want a signed copy. Uh, if you want a personalized copy, then they go to my website, richardbarone.com mm -hmm. and shop the shop uh, tab. But uh, I said it's at all the places that sell books, Amazon and everywhere. Yeah. OK, so we got about 10 minutes left. Yeah. So what about so we want to get a okay. relationship? Uh, I never thought about I don't think about Bowie when I think about Bob Dylan. Is that what you're thinking? Uh -huh. Old no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think the reason I think of them as similar as different sides of a coin, as I said earlier, is because they both created a person, created persona, personas mm -hmm. well, persona. You know, they created. Bob Dylan from Robert Zimmerman created a character. Mm -hmm. It's important to know that, really, you know. Yeah. And uh, and let me just decline a phone call that's coming okay. in. Okay, because then I can get, then I can get I think, serious. I think so Bowie he, created he, many characters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, well Dylan's, Dylan sort of did. In a, okay. you know, he created his first persona, which was very earnest. 
Mm-hmm. And it was very blown in the wind. It was very songs okay. about civil rights, et cetera. But then he immediately switched into a very sort of arrogant uh, 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 character, the uh, uh, who did, um, you know, uh, r- like a Rolling Stone and like these mm-hmm. very uh, aggress- aggressive rants. Yeah, that's a character. Okay. You know, this by the early seventies, he's got this clown. He's putting white uh, clown makeup oh, yeah. on and became yeah. the character on the uh, on the uh, you know the Hard Rain tour. But it was really the yeah. uh, what are they called Rolling Thunder Review? Yeah, yeah. Where he brought uh, the David Bowie's guitar player Mick Ronson. If that's not mm-hmm. a clue, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, to be the guitar player, you know, with like a parade of, of gypsy characters. You know, mm-hmm. that's a character. Uh, now he's like an elder statesman, you know, and he's right, very right, much right. embraced that kind of character. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's doing like for the last few years, his last few albums had been uh, doing standards in this mm-hmm. very kind of ragged voice. Christmas uh, album. That's a character. Yeah. Well, let's jump to <laughs> Bowie, though. Let's, uh, what, what he went to, don't forget, he, 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 he was born again for a while. So there was a born again album. Oh, right, right. Dylan so has definitely been through different. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's definitely been through different personas. Not, not, he didn't maybe change the costume as much as Bowie. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. he did change personas somewhat. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just, I had yeah. never really talked about this before. So I, it's something yeah. I've thought about. And I've, it's okay. not, this is not scripted. I, I'm just saying now, I'm just ripping right, right. on the idea that why maybe there's some similarities. Yeah. They both have, created personas. Well, we want to talk about your um, upcoming shows, and it's to celebrate okay. uh, pinups turning fifty, I guess, in September. But you okay, that, that shows up. That's a really fun, that's a really fun show. We're doing we're doing uh, Bowie's pin, pinups, which is really a tribute to the '60s bands that he was inspired by to do rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. So it's a tribute to Bowie, but it's also a tribute to the Kings, Pink Floyd, all those the '60s mm-hmm. groups. Pink yeah. Floyd uh, as led by uh, Sid Barrett, and. Yeah. Um, and you know it's that's a fun show, but the show that I'm really working on is for November. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's my it's the book. It's Music and Revolution, Greenwich okay. Village, 1960s, at Carnegie mm-hmm. Hall. Oh, wow. it's not it's not to put down pinups. I love the okay. pinup show. The okay. pinup show is uh, with Glenn. Uh, by the way, with Glenn Mercer of the Feelies and, oh, okay. and uh, Dave Weckerman of the Feelies, and it's a it's a a good mix of bongos plus Feelies sounds together. Mm-hmm. And we're doing so it's the pinups, but done really as a guitar rave. Yeah. And because uh, that's, you nice. know, we're not, it's not, there's not saxophones and there's not oh, a lot yeah. of backing vocals. It's really, mm-hmm. it's got a lot of All energy. Rave. It's so much fun. We've been working, working, up, been working yeah. on that for uh, several weeks. Okay. So it's a guitar rave and it's, it's pinups, uh, 50th anniversary shows. We're doing yeah. City Winery in Philadelphia mm-hmm. on July 2nd and two days before that in New York on, uh, okay. on July, June yeah. 30th. Okay. But then, but my focus will be now on the uh, Carnegie Hall show, which I'm excited to bring the book to the concert stage. Wow. And yes. so there'll be some some uh, brief readings that lead into the music so that we can tell the story that I've just been telling you as a concert. Yeah. You know, with that a lot of music really and some great musicians. So I've been lining up some great artists. I mean, Marshall Crenshaw is already on board with me, but we interviewed and David them. Amram, who played... He's great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. David Amram, who was Bowie's p- piano player and maestro extraordinaire, who was also the conductor of the uh, New York Philharmonic in the 60s, mm-hmm. but also played with uh, Jack Kerouac and Dylan and oh, Tim Harden yeah. and so many of the 60s artists. He's wow. going to be on board with me. And it's going to be quite a roster of artists doing this music. And that's at Carnegie Hall in mm-hmm. Sankel Hall there uh, on November 19th at 7.30 p.m. That sounds like a great so, Tickets go on... Tickets will go on sale in the summer, but they're not on sale yet. They go on sale okay. 90 days before the concert. Okay. But I'm telling people about it now because if they want to see it, this is a one a one time only event, you know? Okay. Wow. Well, it was okay. great. Love talking to you, Richard. You were just uh, you 
a historian, music historian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll have to talk again something. Yeah, I think we should talk again because uh, we have a topic. Smithereens, who I love. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, I love stuff. the Smithereens. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and we even can talk, talk more can about that. David Bowie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Next yeah, time, yeah, we'll yeah. talk more about well, David Bowie. I did get to sing backup for him, and that was with real long recordings. Yeah, so that was very nice. Yeah. Oh, wow. um, well, we we can we can we can uh, we can do another thing at some point, maybe yeah, closer the to the Carnegie Hall concert. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That'd Talk be great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. so much for Thank sharing you. your time with us. And uh, yeah, I can see the teacher in you. I hear it, and I appreciate that. So <laughs> thanks so Thank much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Too. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Okay. Bye now. You too. Take care. Okay. All right. Yeah. You too. Bye. listening to No Good Music. Today's interview was produced and edited by Rob J. Lilly and recorded via Zoom at the Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. The song's Brave New World, Numbers with Wings, Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind, Blinker Street, and Glow in the Dark, used with permission from Richard Barone. 